Well, good morning to each of you. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. We finally made it through chapter 6 uh, by God's good grace. And uh, this morning we're going to embark on a study of chapter 7. I want to begin, however, by, by setting the context for for the chapter and in particular for the verses we're going to consider today, I, I'm a firm believer in, in context. As we delve into God's Word and as we look at specific verses, uh, specific passages, we always have to keep the larger context in view. We always have to interpret uh, the small in the light of the large. Uh, to make sure we're getting things right, to make sure we, we are interpreting and handling God's Word accurately. And so when we think of John chapter 7, the context, of course, is the book of John. That's pretty obvious. And uh, more specifically, it's chapters 5 through 12. And in these chapters, what John the Apostle is doing is basically describing, uh, giving us an account of Christ's public ministry. In chapter 13 through chapter 17, he's going to describe Christ's private ministry. But right now he's describing Christ's public ministry, chapter 5 through 12, and he does so focusing on six incidents. Six incidents. The first, in chapter 5, Christ heals a lame man beside the pool of Bethesda. It sparks controversy. It sparks a huge debate. There's opposition to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus ends up making that claim, I am the possessor of life. I am the source, or if you like, the origin of life. That's the first incident. And then as we saw in chapter 6, there's a second incident. Christ feeds, miraculously so, the multitude with five loaves and two fish. That too sparks a controversy. And there's opposition. And the Lord Jesus makes that claim in the midst of the opposition, I am the bread of life. And then in chapter 7, there's a third incident. The Lord Jesus appears at the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. As you might expect, there's an obvious trend. There's opposition. And so the Lord Jesus makes a claim, I am the water of life. And then in chapter 8, there's a fourth incident. The Lord Jesus forgives that woman caught in adultery. It sparks controversy. There's another huge debate. There's growing opposition to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He declares, I am the light of life. And then in chapters 9 and 10, we have a fifth incident. Christ heals a blind man. There's opposition. The Lord Jesus claims to be the giver of life. And then sixthly, in chapters 11 and 12, we have the culmination of these incidents. The Lord Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And there's opposition. And he claims to be the source. I am the resurrection and the life. That's chapters 5 through 12 in a nutshell. Bird's eye view. That's what's going on there. John is simply putting on display for us 
Christ's public ministry as it focuses on these six incidents. It's obvious that he's trying to get something across to us. Christ is life. In him is life. Why? Because Christ alone brings us into fellowship with God. And Christ is life. That is, he brings us into fellowship with God by virtue of his penal substitutionary sacrifice. The righteous dies for the unrighteous. The holy dies for the unholy. In order to bear God's wrath, God's condemnation, that we might be set free and might enter into communion and fellowship with God in whom alone there is life. And John stresses the point in numerous ways from numerous different angles that this life that is Christ is life to those who believe. Those who come to me, says the Lord Jesus. Those who follow me. Those who abide in me. Those who feed on me. These are synonymous expressions. They all point to the need of faith that is a closing with Christ, whereby we forsake any perceived righteousness in ourselves. We come acknowledging our sinfulness. We repent of our sins and we believe in Christ as our only hope, our only hope of salvation. That's John's central message in these chapters. We've covered chapters five and six, the first two incidents. And so today we're going to embark on a study of chapter 7, the third incident. Now, I know this is a little, this is a little cerebral, but again, it's important that we understand this. Uh, the chapter divides into three scenes, almost like scenes in a play. This isn't a play, this is historical fact, but it's almost like three scenes that unfold before our eyes. The first scene is found in verses 1 through 13. Christ's absence. From the beginning of the feast. Christ's absence from the beginning of the feast. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Then there's a second scene. Verse 14, right through to verse 36. Christ's appearance in the middle of the feast. Look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And then there is a third scene. It begins in verse 37, goes all the way through to the end of the chapter, verse 52. And here we have Christ's declaration or Christ's appeal at the end of the feast. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. So we have these three Acts, three scenes set before us. Again, Christ's absence from the beginning of the feast, the first 13 verses. Christ's appearance, he just shows up in the middle of the feast, verse 14 through to verse 36. And then Christ's appeal at the end of the feast, the rest of the chapter. So there's a pretty natural division. And what I intend to do, what I plan to do, is basically preach three sermons on this chapter, one sermon on each section. And so this morning we're going to begin with Christ's absence from the beginning of the feast. And I invite you to follow along as I read the first 13 verses for us. After this, 
Jesus went about in Galilee. That's a geographical district or province. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, Christ's half-brothers, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, let me just explain briefly. It's pretty straightforward. Let me explain briefly the contents of these verses. Basically, six Things, if you like, happen here. First of all, we learn right there in verse 1 that Christ is avoiding Judea. Why? Why is he only ministering in Galilee and avoiding Judea? John tells us right there, the second half of verse 1, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So how does staying in Galilee help him avoid the Jews that are seeking to kill him? Aren't they all Jews, the people who live in Galilee? Yes, they are, but they are under different political jurisdictions. Judea is under the executive power of the Jews, under a Roman governor, whereas Galilee is under the authority of Herod. And so Christ is avoiding Judea because he knows that the Jews, that is the Jewish religious leaders, political leaders, want to arrest him. They want to kill him. And so he's just avoiding it altogether, and he's ministering strictly in Galilee. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing is this. The Feast of Booths, verse 2, is at hand. What is that? Basically, if we go back to Sinai, and if we go back to those... Books such as Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we will discover that God established for the Jewish nation seven feasts. And basically the Jewish calendar is organized around what we call the seven feasts of Jehovah. And so there's the feast of atonement, there's the feast of Passover, and there is the feast of booths. And this was a feast that was inaugurated, that was instituted for the national life of Israel, whereby they would remember and they would celebrate God's provision toward them while they were wandering in the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land. And what they would do, this feast would last eight days each year. I think it was in the months of September, October. They would live in booths for eight days. And they would celebrate the autumn harvest and they would celebrate God's goodness. 
and how God provided for their ancestors as he led them out of captivity, that is, from the land of Egypt to the promised land. Well, it's time for this Feast of Booths. This Feast of Booths is at hand. We know that the Feast of Booths is more or less six months before Passover. And so the events of this chapter occur six months prior to the death, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing I want you to notice, pretty obvious, verses 3 through 5, Christ's brothers, half-brothers, want him to go to Judea. They want him to go to Jerusalem. They want him to attend the Feast of Booths. They want him to do so publicly. They want him to do so openly. Why? Verse 4, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world. Now, they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They aren't thinking messianically. They aren't thinking in terms of the cross. They are thinking strictly in terms of Christ as a political entity and perhaps someone who through all of these different wonders and signs and miracles will gather a following. Much, much in the same vein as the crowds in chapter 6. We're looking and hoping that the Lord Jesus would become some sort of grand political figure. If you want to be known openly, go to Jerusalem. Now is the time, the Feast of Booths. Show yourself to the world. Do something miraculous in front of everybody. But notice, fourthly, Christ's response, verses 6 through 9. He refuses to go publicly to the feast. He gives two reasons. The first is this. What he wants isn't what his brothers want. They're thinking on a grand scale. They're thinking carnally, materially, and politically. And the Lord Jesus is not here to fulfill his brother's whims or the crowd's whims. He says, my time has not yet come. I have other business. I am here for another reason. And he refuses to go up. The second reason he refuses to go up publicly at this time is because he knows the Jews are seeking to kill him. He knows he has a rendezvous with the Jews. He knows he has a rendezvous with death, but it will be at Passover. Why will it be at Passover and only at Passover? Because Christ is God's Passover lamb. There is an appointed hour. There is an appointed day. There is an appointed time. The day will come when I will ride on a mule into Jerusalem. I will declare myself to be who I have always declared myself to be. God's son. God's king. That is my hour. I'm not going there now. My hour has not yet arrived. But notice next that Christ does go privately to the feast. Verse 10. He goes without the pomp and ceremony. And he goes and he does begin to teach in the temple as we'll see next week. He does begin to confront the Jews. There is again this growing opposition. But it is all subtle. It is this subtle undercurrent. And notice sixthly. That the Jews are looking for the Lord Jesus. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Careful here. That is not an expression of interest. That is an expression of intent. They have no interest in him. No interest in listening to his teaching. 
No interest in coming face to face with his claims. It is their intent to kill him. Where is he? That's the gist of the first 13 verses. Now, the question we should be asking ourselves, the question we should always be asking ourselves, once we understand Scripture and what it is saying and the, and the flow and the objective and all of that, the question we ask ourselves is, fine, what am I supposed to glean from that? What is it that the Spirit of God is saying through the Word of God? Well, I believe the answer to that question is found in the sermon title, today's sermon title, which is simply as follows, Costly Mistakes. Costly Mistakes. And I submit to you this morning that there are three costly mistakes in these verses. We make some mistakes in life that don't have consequences. We make other mistakes in life that have enormous consequences. The consequences of the mistakes, the three mistakes we find in these verses, are of a gigantic proportion. If we err here, we err for all eternity. These are errors. These are costly mistakes that jump out at us from these verses, from this incident, and we need to be very clear in our minds, very clear in our hearts, that we discern God's truth and we do not, have not, do not, and will not succumb to these mistakes, these errors. And so I'm going to take them in turn this morning as they present themselves to us in the text. The first is this. There is a mistake, a blatant error, concerning Christ's purpose. Concerning Christ's purpose. His half-brothers, verse 3, they say to him, Leave here, that is, leave Galilee. Go to Judea. Why? That your disciples, generic sense of the word, followers, also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret, which to us, it seems that's what you're doing. It's all rather secretive. No one does that if he seeks to be known openly, publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so, as I've already stated, they are thinking carnally in the flesh. They are thinking materially, the here and now, temporally. They are thinking politically, just like the crowds who thought, yes, perhaps Christ is the last prophet, this great prophet who was to come. And just as Moses led our ancestors from under the boot of the Egyptians, so too this last Moses, this great prophet, is going to lead us from under the authority, the boot, the oppression of the Romans. Surely he's come. Now's the time. Go to Jerusalem. Big feast. All the Jews are there. They're required to be there, do some tricks, do some miracles, do some signs, and we'll get this show on the road. Away we go. Show yourself openly, publicly. Let's get to it. And look at Christ's response. Verse 6, he said to them, my time has not yet come. Look again at verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. What's he talking about? What is Christ's time? Flip over, fast forward to chapter 12. Let me just read a couple of verses for you from chapter 12, namely verses 23 
and 27. Listen carefully to what Christ says here. Again, that's John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look now at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have Come to this hour. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover. This is six months after the feast of booths. Six months after what we find in John chapter 7. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. What is Christ's hour? It is His hour of exaltation. It is His hour of glorification. His brothers are asking Him to exalt exalt Himself, magnify Himself, glorify Himself, carnally speaking, in the eyes of men. But the Lord Jesus has a far greater glory, a far greater exaltation in view when He will be suspended between heaven on earth and earth on Calvary's cross and He will glorify His Father by going to death and the shame death of the cross, thereby fulfilling his will's fa- father's will from all eternity and subjecting, submitting himself only and fully and wholly to doing his father's will. That's my hour. That's my purpose. The hour is upon me. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this purpose that I have come. To this hour. And here we see the overarching goal of Christ. The overarching objective. The purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ as designed in the mind of God. Calvary's cross. It's expressed throughout scripture, isn't it? There is a wonderful, absolutely, simply Wonderful statement tucked away in Revelation chapter 13. It's verse 8. Don't turn there. Just listen to this and try to get your mind around the content of this verse. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written Before the foundation of the world, in the book of life, of the Lamb that was slain. Just quickly, I can't spend a lot of time on this this morning. Four things. One, there's a book, right? That's obvious. I'm just stating the obvious. There's a book. Secondly, there are names in that book. Thirdly, the book was written when? Before the foundation of the world. And fourthly, the book has a title. It is the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. What does that mean? It means this. God had the cross in view before the foundation of the world. 
the mind of Almighty God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, focuses upon an hour, the cross. The entire plan, purpose, will, counsel, decree of God culminates in an hour, an appointed hour, the cross. The entire history of humanity finds its significance, its meaning can only be understood in an appointed hour, the cross. Truth and error, justice and wrath and love and mercy, all all that we contemplate, all the great questions of life, all of the questions that man's mind has devised throughout his history, all find their answer in and only find their answer in the cross. At the cross, we have the defining moment that is of Cosmic significance. Here is half-brothers. Ooh, go up to Jerusalem. Go up to the feast. Let's do, some, let's do something. Heal somebody. Feed a bunch of people. Raise somebody from the dead. I don't know. Your disciples, yeah, they're ready to go. You'll attract all sorts of people. And then who knows what the sky's the limit. My hour has not yet come. That's not why I'm here. There's a book. There's a book that was written before the foundation of the world. And that book has my name on it. It is the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Oh, the centrality of the cross in the mind, in the purposes of Christ. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, one question And one question alone, what do you think about the cross? It's it's a popular icon today, sadly. Uh, It's been used somewhat flippantly, I suppose, throughout history. Constantine, the Roman emperor, used it. Regrettably, the crusaders used it in the medieval ages. Uh, Great Britain uses it on a... Her flag, you got the Union Jack, St. George's Cross, St. Andrew's Cross, and whatever the patron saint of Wales is. There you have it right there. Humanitarian organizations use it. We see it in architecture. We see it in art. We see it in jewelry. We even see it in tattoos. Popular icon, popular symbol. And some view it as, as some sort of good luck charm. Others view it as as some sort of expression of unconditional love. Some look at it as some expression of of self-sacrifice. And sadly, in our day, that this, this flippant and casual approach to the cross reveals what? That people don't have a clue as to the significance of the cross. The cross isn't cool. The cross is a curse. They would hang people up and suspend them between heaven and earth as an expression of the fact that their feet were not even worthy to touch the earth. 
It is a despicable, despised, shameful, cursed way to die. And if you are here this morning, you are not a Christian. The question that has to, please, friend, the question that has to be in the forefront of your mind is what is the cross? What is its significance? What is it all about? What is that bloody man doing hanging there upon Golgotha's tree? The answer is so poetic and beautiful as found, is it not, in in Pilgrim's cry. A blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher. Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. That's the cross. That is the centrality of the cross in the mind of God. And that is what the Lord Jesus has before him. As his brothers make this carnal suggestion, he will have nothing of it. He has the eternal purposes of God in view. As they are fulfilled in, realized in, as they culminate in what he will accomplish at Calvary's cross. Now, for the Christian here this morning, all of us, I hope and pray, all of us, I hope and pray, uh, what does the cross mean to us? We're saying, well, that's an easy one. You can move on to the next point. We all know what the cross is about. Uh, we all know the significance of the cross. But here's the thing. I- I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced of it that, that more often than we probably care to admit Even as Christians, as believers, we lose sight of the centrality of the cross. This was driven home to me like a a dagger about a year back as I was reading through Mahaney's The Cross-Centered Life. As a matter of fact, it's our resource, isn't it, for the month? An edited version anyway, out there in the resource center. And let me just read a portion of uh, of this book, an illustration that Mahaney gives And please listen, listen carefully to this. He writes, on Monday, on Monday, Alice bought a parrot. Have you heard this one? On Monday, Alice bought a parrot. It didn't talk. So the next day, she returned to the pet store. He needs a ladder, she was told. So she bought a ladder. But another day passed and the parrot still didn't say a word. How about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The next day, a miniature plastic tree. The next day, a shiny parrot toy. On Sunday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened. She had the parrot cage in her hand and tears in her eyes. Her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word? The store owner asked. Yes, Alice said through her sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any food at that pet store? Now, get the chuckle out of the system. (laughs) Poor Alice. Get the chuckle out of the system. The title of the chapter is this. What's your life centered on? Mahaney proceeds to write the following. Just as no amount of parrot cage amenities 
can make up for a lack of parrot food. Nothing can replace the gospel in a Christian's life. Without it, our souls will become like Alice's pet, starving in a crowded cage. I fear, brothers and sisters, I greatly fear that many of us are starving in a crowded cage. We've been duped by the world into thinking this will make us happy. This will bring us meaning. This will bring us satisfaction. And we have sucked up and sucked in all the toys and trinkets and trifles and pleasures and allurements, thinking, surely this will bring us joy. Surely this will bring us happiness. And as morally neutral as many of those things may be, What they have served to do is this. They have taken our eyes away from the cross. Christian, you have no business living anywhere but in the shadow of the cross. Nowhere. I have no business living anywhere but in the shadow of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My my fear my fear is that as we, as we fill these cages, so to speak, with parrot amenities and toys, that, 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 that as we're distracted and as, and as the cross is no longer central to our lives, but we're running here, there, and everywhere over time, what happens? The cracks begin to appear in the foundation. We begin, our lives begin to come apart at the seams. And before we know it, affliction arises, trouble comes, and we're at a loss for words, a loss as to an explanation why. We're looking here, there, thither, and yonder for a reason. And all the while, the reason is staring us in the face. If we would only look, we have strayed from the shadow of the cross. You see, God has a purpose. One purpose. It is to glorify and magnify Himself at Calvary's cross in His Son. And there we see, as the hymn says, that old rugged cross, splattered with the blood of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It is of utmost preeminent importance in the mind of God. And if we err here, Oh, we err terribly. And the consequences are unspeakable and unthinkable. And how we must enter into the mind and the purposes of God, the mind and the purposes of Christ Himself, who declared, What shall I say? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, 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 no. It is for this very purpose that I have come to. This hour, there's a mistake concerning Christ's purpose. Secondly, there's a mistake concerning Christ's nature, his nature, in particular, his relationship uh, with the world. Now, this comes out again in, in the brother's request. Look at the second part of verse four. If you do these things. 
Show yourself to the world. Look at Christ's response. Verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Into verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. First question, right off the bat, what's the world? John uses that term world, cosmos, in the Greek in at least five different ways in this gospel account. In this context here, by world, what he has in view is the kingdom of darkness. What he has in view is Satan's realm, Satan's domain. What he has in view is the seed of the serpent. And when John uses the term world in this sense, Paul uses it as well. What they have in view in the first instance is a way of thinking. It is that way of thinking that marks man by virtue of the fall, whereby man has become the center of reality. Man has become the center of his own existence. It is that man has taken it hook, line, and sinker from devil, that lie, back in the garden. And the day you eat thereof, you will be like God. Oh, how we love that. God of my own life. God of my own little world. Complete self-autonomy apart from God. No responsibility. No accountability. And so man becomes the measure of all things. It's the spirit of secularism is what it is. It's a way of thinking. And secondly, it's a way of behaving, isn't it? John makes that clear in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 16. He gives us three marks of the world, behavior. He says, firstly, there's the lust of the flesh. It's hedonism, excessive sensual pleasure. He says, secondly, there's the lust of the eyes, materialism, good old-fashioned greed. He says, thirdly, there's the boastful pride of life, humanism. As John Trapp puts it, pleasure, the lust of the flesh, profit, the lust of the eyes, preferment, the boastful pride of life, are the worldly man's trinity. The worldly man's trinity. That is the world. And notice what the Lord Jesus says. This is, this is illuminating. I pray it is. Look at what he says there in verse 7. The world cannot hate you. Why not? The world doesn't hate its own. How insulting is that? That's what he says to his brothers. The world can't hate you. Do the math. Two plus two is four. The reason the world can't hate you is because the world doesn't hate itself. And you are part of the world. But the world, oh, it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You have evil and goodness unrighteousness and righteousness, unholiness and holiness, imperfection and perfection. You have the nature of the world and the nature of the beloved Son of God. And here these two stand in hostility, in enmity, and the world hates him. Shouldn't surprise us. God told us right back in Genesis 3.15 that was the way it was going to be. He said it right to the devil himself. I will put, what, enmity between you and the woman. Enmity, hatred, and between your seed and her seed. Who are the seed of the devil, the serpent? It's the world. Fallen humanity. Who are the seed of the woman? It's Christ. And all who are in Christ. And so the Lord Jesus here is making a profound distinction between being in and being out. Uh, The world can't hate you because you are of the world. The world does not hate its own. 
But it hates me. Oh, it hates me passionately. Why? Because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Three implications, friends, brothers, sisters, three implications. Lessons, important lessons. I pray we we take them to heart this morning. The first is as follows. It's, It's stating the obvious. I do that a lot, but sometimes I need to hear the obvious. I don't know about you. First is this. Proximity to the world is risky. Proximity to the world is risky. Horatius Bonar writes, associating too much and too intimately with the world, we have in a great measure become accustomed to its ways. Hence, our tastes, spiritual tastes, have been vitiated. Our consciences blunted. And that that sensitive tenderness of feeling which shrinks from the remotest contact with sin, has worn off and given place to an amount of callousness. Years ago, I worked as a roofer. I don't know if that's what you call them here. The guys who nail the shingles to the roofs. I was a roofer. Teenager, early 20s. And I'll tell you, this, this hand, soft as a baby's backside, this hand calloused from the hammer, just Calluses all along here. And there were evenings I would take a razor blade and just work away at these hardened calluses and I would never feel a thing. That's the danger of proximity to the world. We lose our spiritual appetite. We lose our conscience. We lose our spiritual sensitivity to the things of God. We lose that spiritual repulsiveness that we should have towards sin. Not toward people, but toward the world. That way of thinking, that way of behaving. And oh, that we would take this to heart. Proximity to the world is risky. The second lesson is this. Conformity to the world is adultery. As a Christian, I am wed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am am bound to Christ, married to Christ. He is the bridegroom. I am his bride. What do we expect of one another as spouses? We expect utmost devotion. You go and share that devotion Physically, intimately, spiritually, emotionally with another individual. What do we call that? It's adultery. It's exactly the same thing when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Uh, He is our spouse. He demands our affection in full. He demands the utmost of our hearts. And when we when we detract our hearts from Christ and we give them to the world, that which is at enmity with Christ, we are guilty. And I know this is blunt, but we need to get this. We are guilty of spiritual whoredom. That's what we've done. It's a terrible thing. James writes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the third lesson is this. Animosity toward the world is necessary. Necessary. Again, don't misunderstand me. 
I'm not talking about hating people. Nothing could be further from the truth. I am talking about hating the world. That way of thinking that is focused on me, myself, and I. And that way of behavior that is characterized by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. How we must cultivate a sensitive animosity toward the world. And thereby keep ourselves from the world. Joel Beakey explains in a very apt illustration what this means. He writes, consider the man who lived at the top of a mountain. He needed to hire someone to take his daughter up and down the mountain each day for school. He asked the applicants, how close can you come to the edge of the mountain without going over? It's a good question. The first man said, I can come within 12 inches and not go over the edge. The second man claimed, I can come within six inches of the edge. The third man boasted he could come within an inch of the edge. But the fourth man said, I don't know, because I'll be hugging the other side. I will stay as far away from the edge as I possibly can. You know who got the job. Sadly, today, it, is, it seems that the expressed purpose of many professing to believers is to get to close, as close to the world as they comfortably can. No, that shouldn't be our objective. Our objective should be to get as far away from it as we can. We are called to be in the world, but not of it. We are called to be salt, that is to have a preserving effect upon the world, light and illuminating effect upon the world. And we are called as a new humanity, a new creation in Christ. We are not called to mirror the world to itself. We are called to mirror the glory of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God to the world. Sadly, it was Lloyd-Jones writing in the 50s, over 50 years ago, who said the problem in our day is this. The world looks at the church and sees its own image reflected there. The world looks at the church and sees its own image reflected there. Now, we are called, yes, to reflect, to mirror an image. It is the image of the thrice holy God. That is our calling as the bride of Christ to glorify God, testifying to His saving grace, transforming grace in us as He beautifies us, as He purifies us, that we might display the excellencies of God to a fallen world. The, disciple, the, the, the brothers didn't get that. Show yourself to the world. That's what they wanted. Christ, why would I do that? (laughs) The world absolutely hates me. There is absolute, unbridled, unrestrained animosity and hostility between the world and myself. Why? Because we are speaking of two diametrically opposed natures. Unholiness versus holiness. And now the third, the third mistake, and I will be brief because my time is up. The third mistake that emerges in this chapter, let me just mention it briefly and leave it with you, is as follows. 
there's a mistake concerning Christ's person. Twelfth verse. And there was much muttering about him among the people. Jerusalem is in a frenzy. Tizzy. The Lord Jesus. Who is he? Where is he? While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. That's their conclusion. Now ask yourselves, where is this taking place? Jerusalem. Has Christ already been in Jerusalem? Yes, chapter 5. He was in Jerusalem. What did the citizens of Jerusalem see at that time? They saw him walk beside the pool of Bethesda. And they knew there was a man there who had been lame for 38 years. And they knew that the Lord Jesus had fixed his gaze on that man, had told him to get up, pick up his bed and walk. And he walked. That's what they saw. That's what they knew. And what had they heard when the Lord Jesus was formerly in Jerusalem? They had heard his claims. They had heard his claims to be working by the authority of his father. They had heard him refer to God as his father, thereby making him equal with God. And what's the best they can come up with? He's a good man. He's a good man. Oh, what a costly mistake. What a costly error to gaze upon the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and to conclude he is a good man. No, he is, as John himself expresses it in the first chapter, verse 14. He is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of God.